with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be looking today at an entire verse of Scripture again, just as we did last week, which is remarkable if you've been around for the last couple of months. And uh, it is Romans 1, 7. And just as I've done recently, I'm going to read the verses leading up to it. Let's, let's read this together. Romans 1, starting in verse 1, looking especially at verse 7 when we get there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. And here's our verse for today. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to think about what it means to be loved by God and what flows from that that's expressed here in this verse. There's more to it than we could possibly express in a day or a year or a lifetime, but we're going to think about what this verse tells us about the love of God and what flows from that. Jonathan Edwards wrote a a small little treatise. I think he first delivered it as a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. It was based on the verse in 1 Corinthians that says, love never fails, which does not mean what you typically think of in a romantic setting at a wedding, like if you really love each other, it's never, the feeling's never going to go away. That's not what the Bible verse means. What it means is that love is going to continue forever between God and his people in heaven. Uh, Here's the way Edwards puts it. There are three worlds. One is this, which is an intermediate world a world in which good and evil are so mixed together as to be a sure sign that this world is not to continue forever. Another world is heaven, a world of love without any hatred. And the other is hell, a world of hatred where there is no love, which is the world to which all of you who are in a Christless state properly belong. This last is the world where God manifests his displeasure and wrath, as in heaven he manifests his love. Guys, this is this, what, what we need to know is that if we have come to faith in Christ, we've been rescued out of hatred. We've been rescued out of sin. We've been rescued out of our rightful destiny to a world of nothing but wrath and punishment and hatred forever and ever, which is what our sin would have brought upon us. And when we were there, we would not have been partying with our families and enjoying each other's company or even declaring our love for God. We would have been in a constant state of hatred against one another, against Satan and his demons who were there too, against God himself. That's what hell is, with much more to say about it than that. But on the other hand, what we are destined for by those, for those whose faith is in Christ is we are destined to take in and to enjoy God in love forever and ever. Love without any mixture whatsoever of hatred 
or wrath or displeasure of any kind, both between us and God and us and the angels and us and every other saint who is there for all time. That's what we're headed toward. And one of the beautiful things about the Christian life is that you don't have to wait until you're in heaven to know love. We come to know love by coming to know Jesus Christ. If you want to know what love is, 1 John 3.16 says, here is how you know what love is. In this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We come to understand the actual love of the actual loving God who is love by coming to know Jesus who laid down his life for our sins. This, these verses that we just read, including those that are leading up to verse 7 where we came, I, I, I want you to look down back at the text and I want you to see where you see the words of God. And you're going to see them three times. It says in, in verse 1 that Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. And that's telling us not only what Paul's ministry is about, but what the primary theme of the book of Romans is going to be about. The gospel of God, God's gospel, God's good news. And then you go down and you see in verse 4 that it is concerning the Son of God. He is declared to be the Son of God. Concerning his Son, he is the Son of God. The good news of God is about the Son of God. The gospel of God concerning the Son of God, and in verse 7, it says it is to those who are loved by God, or the beloved of God, is really the way that it is in how Paul wrote it there. The loved of God. It's the gospel of God concerning the Son of God to the beloved of God. And if you've come to faith in Christ, it is because God has loved you. So let's set our minds on that. Let's think about what the love of God is, what it means to be beloved of God, loved by God, and some of the implications that come from that from this verse. When we say loved by God, that's something that can sound really, really forgettable. And I think the reason it sounds so forgettable is because so many people say it. People who know God say it, people who don't know God say it, bumper stickers say it, all kinds of stuff says all over the place, God loves you, God loves everybody, all these kinds of things, and we need to actually step back and consider the love of God from a biblical perspective. Now, God has said, Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount that there is a sense in which God does love everybody. You know how we, we know that? It's because Jesus says, love your enemies, and he, he gives a reason for that. He says, love your enemies so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And he gives an example of the Father in heaven loving his enemies, which is that he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So there is a universal sense of what we call God's common grace. It's a kind of love. As Jesus puts it, it's a love for enemies in which God gives an opportunity for repentance to all who are on this earth by keeping them alive, by giving them what they need, by giving them rain in due season, by allowing people not to drop immediately into hell as we deserve. There's a kind of love and mercy of God there. But the more common way that the Bible speaks of the love of God is a special redeeming love. And that's what we're talking about here. 
That is not a love that has been given to everyone. And when we, when we kind of just gloss over this idea of loved by God and the love of God, it can sound so forgettable, so not special. It's almost like in the, in the, the movie The Incredibles where the little boy says that if everybody's special, then nobody's special. You can just forget about it. But the love that we're talking about here, the love that's expressed in verse 7 of Romans chapter 1 is a love that is a redeeming love given to a specific people in a way that it is not given to everyone, in a way that is special, that saves, and that's beyond all comprehension. It is beyond all comprehension. It's the specific redeeming love of God in Christ. Here's how it's put in Romans 5.8. If you have your faith in Jesus, here is why. It's because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. That is amazing. We know that for us who love God and are called according to his purpose, that he is causing all things to work together for our good so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And in particular, it all came together in the fact that God sent his own son who voluntarily took our place in death and punishment on the cross in order that we could have life eternal. It says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Guys, that is not a love that has come to everybody in the entire world without exception. Not everyone has been predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And yet the gospel is freely offered to everybody here. And if you will embrace Jesus in faith, if you will come, if you will lay yourself down and take up Christ as Lord and Savior and the joy and treasure of your life, if you will turn to him in faith, the reason that you're doing that is because in love he has predestined you to adopt you as a son. See with what kind of love the Father has, has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Guys, not everybody is a child of God. But when we become children of God by faith in his son Jesus, it is because God has loved us deeply. Loved us. Jesus, when he was praying for those that he was going to die for on the cross the next day, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in John 17, he, he says, you sent me, he's, this is God the Son praying to God the Father, he says, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you hear that? How does God the Father love God the Son? And I can just summarize it by saying a lot. And, and Jesus says, Father, you have loved them. Believer, that's you. Even as you have loved me. God loves you. Jesus said, he clarifies though in that same prayer, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There is a distinction here between those that God gives his redeeming love to and those that God does not give his redeeming love to. But when God has given us his redeeming love, it says in Ephesians 2 that God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Guys, you know what that just said? It says that the reason that you have been saved, the reason that you were taken out of death in your sins where you could do nothing and you were caused to be born again and you were brought to this place of trusting in Jesus, the ultimate reason for that is the love of God. The reason for that is founded within God himself and the fact that he is a God who is love and has chosen to pour out that love upon specific people and brings it into being in pouring it out and bringing people from death to life, from bondage to sin, to being children of God through faith in Jesus. It says pretty much the same thing in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Guys, we got to get this straight. Your love for God is not what kicked off his love for you. Your deciding upon God is not what kicked off his deciding upon you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. We love because he first loved us. If you have come to love God and to love his people, as is also emphasized in that same chapter, the reason is because God first loved you. He loved you. He loved you. And that love is something that we are called to set our hearts on, to think about, to seek to know, to seek to understand. It says in, in Ephesians 3, there's a prayer that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, think of breadth, how wide is it, the length, the height, how far up into the sky can you go forever, and the depth, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You know what that Bible verse just said? It said that no matter, believer, no matter how much you already know that God loves you, he loves you much more than that. He loves you much more than that. I want you to know that God's love is not dependent upon your behavior right? You need to know that there is a difference between God's law and God's gospel. It's expressed in, in, first, in first John like this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God did not look down and see, this is the kind of person who will love me more than that kind of person. 
And so that's why I'm going to send my son for that person. No. He loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. When, when you have come to faith in Jesus, it's not because you were a better person than somebody who didn't. It's because God loved you. And believer, you do not keep yourself in the love of God by your behavior. Now, if you are aware of your misbehavior in your life, we're going to talk about that in a minute when it talks about being saints and being holy. It matters. You need to seek to root sin out of your life. That's true. But it is never going to be on the basis of your being holier that God is going to love you more. It is on the basis of God's loving you that he is going to sanctify you. Guys, it is God's love first. It comes first. God's not sitting around waiting to see what is this person going to do and will I love them. God is granting love freely, beautifully, without measure, and in response, changing hearts and changing lives to come to love him and to love each other. We want to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This love that God has is a love for real people. Real, individual, human beings. We see that in what it says in the first words of verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Now, what you see there is that there are specific people who are spoken of. It also tells us something of the greater context of the letter, and I told you some about this when we first uh, got into Romans, the very first verse as we opened up and gave an overview of the book of Romans, and so I want to remind you of a little bit of that, when it says that this letter specifically is written to those who are in Rome, you should know that that doesn't mean that this book of the Bible only applies to those people in that time. I think Paul very much was aware that he was writing scripture. There's a lot of reasons for that. He knew that this would be something that would be part of the people of God's uh, treasuring uh, of the Bible for all time. So it's to us too, and, and yet as, as we read through this letter, it's helpful to know the context and history that it was in. So let's think about Rome for a second. Let's think about what was going on historically there at the time that Paul was writing this, probably around 67 AD. Rome was the capital city of the most powerful empire in the world at the time. It was a city that, therefore, lots of people would have considered extremely important, maybe the most important city in the world in certain ways. And there was a church, a Christian church that had been founded there, or perhaps a group of churches around the, the town. And who started those churches, or who started that church? Well, it was not Peter. The Bible says absolutely nothing about Peter going to Rome. It wasn't Paul, because Paul says explicitly that he didn't start it. It was probably some of the Jewish residents of Rome who had been present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and had been converted uh, on that day when Peter stood up and preached the gospel. And they had gone back to Rome, they had spread the gospel, they had begun this church. And as they had begun this church, there had arisen a huge controversy in Rome among the Jewish people who were living there. And the controversy had gotten so heated that the emperor Claudius ended up kicking all of the Jews out of Rome. It, it, here's what the, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius says in his work, The Life of Claudius. It says, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. 
which means that there was a controversy about whether or not Jesus was the Christ, and uh, Claudius used that as his excuse to do what he probably wanted to do for a long time, kicking the Jews out of the city. And that resulted in two things. One of the things that that resulted in is that as these believing Jews from Rome who believed in Christ were kicked out, they were spread all over uh, the Roman Empire, and Paul got to meet a lot of them and got to know them personally. And so it says in Acts 18, verses 1 and 2, uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila were among those that Paul got to meet in person who were members of the church in Rome who had been kicked out with this expulsion of the Jews from Rome. And you see at the, in Romans 16, this greeting, this personal greeting from Paul of dozens of people from the church in Rome, even though Paul has never been there before. And so God in his providence, in his plans, sent all kinds of members of the church of Rome all over the world to meet all, all kinds of other people, including Paul himself. The second thing that this did is it made the Roman church have a unique situation, a unique situation that its early years had been almost exclusively as a Gentile group of believers because the Jews had been expelled from Rome. And so what was left there in the church? Well, it was the Gentile believers. And that sets the tone in many ways for a lot of the rest of Romans and these discussions about Jews and Gentiles. As many of the churches in the New Testament, like the church in Jerusalem, they were founded as primarily Jewish churches, and then they had to figure out how to incorporate Gentiles. In Rome, they were a primarily Gentile church, and they were having to try to figure out how do we incorporate Jews who trust in Jesus. So it sets the context for that in many ways. But what I want to think about mainly here, in terms of what it says about being loved by God, it's not just the historical context of what's going on with the emperor Claudius and stuff like that. I want you to know that these are real specific people like you and me. It's easy when we get a couple thousand years of history between us to start thinking of people as extremely different. And in some ways they were. They, they spoke in a language that we would not have been able to understand if we heard it spoken. They had customs that would have seemed strange to us in many ways. They were living in a culture that was unique to that time and place in history, and yet they are human beings. And there is so much about human beings that is common in being created in the image of God. These are people with names, just as we could go around the room and say the name of everybody in here. These are specific people with names, with birthdays, with favorite foods, people with their own joys, their own sorrows in life, people with talents, people with weaknesses, people with real sins, real people with real sins. And Paul says to them, to those in Rome, you specific people who are loved by God and called saints. Guys, remember what Jesus said? You sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You think to yourself, well, what about me? Could God love me? And the answer is yes. God does not say, well, I'm just going to love sort of a category of people. This is sometimes what happens when we Christians 
fool ourselves, or when people who claim to be Christians fool themselves. And they say, well, yes, of course I, of course I love the church, of course I love God's people, but I just haven't found any church that's not full of hypocrites. You know what that is? That, that's this idea in general, yeah, I love, but when I get down to actually face-to-face, it's kind of bad breath. And there, there's kind of, you know, that guy's just really long-winded. And, and that lady over there, she just doesn't seem genuine to me. Or whatever it is. And you know what God says to that? He says, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? God, on the other hand, he actually loves actual people. Actual people with all other zits and flaws and everything. He loves people. And he loves those that he has set his love on from before the foundation of the world, including those in Rome who are called to be saints, and including those in Matawan who are called to be saints. This is part of the effect of his love is that he pours it out. It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Yet you want to know something amazing? God actually loves me. Me. I'm one of those people who I'm pretty aware of a lot of reasons why someone would not want to love me. As most of you probably are aware of things in your own life too, unless you have weird narcissistic tendencies. And yet God loves even me, even sinners, even sinners of whom whom I am the foremost. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Real people this love is for. This love of God is a transforming love to us, real people. It says to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God, and here's some of what flows out of that love. He says, and called to be saints. Or you could say called and saints. There's a calling. There's a transforming love. We talked about this in verse 6 last time. This kind of calling that's not just a, hey, do you want to come over? But a kind of calling that's like, oh, it is a powerful calling. It is a tearing down of all of the walls of our resistance. It is a kind of calling where you hear this call of God and it is effectual. It changes hearts. It changes lives. It says in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And he doesn't say some of those who called believed. It says all of those. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A powerful, effectual call that flows from the love of God. When you came to faith in Jesus, when you were born again, as Jesus puts it, it's because God called. He powerfully called. It's kind of like getting drafted, except good. It's, It's like getting drafted into something you're happy about, like getting drafted into a royal family instead of getting drafted into an army to fight in a war. Although in a sense, I guess you could say we're getting drafted into an army to fight in a war, but not of this world, not of this world. 
we have been called, and we've been called in consequence of the love of God, and we have been called to be saints, it says. Now, we should, I should clarify a little bit, because the way that this translation puts it, and some translation puts it, it, it almost says those in Rome who are called to be saints, it, it almost sounds like you, you really ought to become a saint. That's not what it says, though. What it actually says is those who are called, comma, saints. You have been called. If your faith is in Jesus, you have been called to Jesus, and you have been made a saint. This is the way that the Bible describes it. This is the way that the Bible uses the word saint. And I have to be very clear about this because we live in a place where it is very common to hear the word saint and to hear it in particular in the way that the Roman Catholic Church uses it. The difference between the way that the Roman Catholic Church speaks of saints and the way that the Bible speaks of saints brings out one of the most clear contrasts that we have in front of us of the gospel of Rome versus the gospel of God. When, when the Roman Catholic Church speaks of saints, they are speaking of those who have lived a life who have died and who have gone to heaven and who have been declared by the Catholic Church to have been those who went to heaven and have been canonized by the Catholic Church. You see, in Roman Catholic gospel, which is not the gospel of the Bible, not all of those who believe in Christ go straight to heaven. They believe that all of those who, uh, who are baptized as babies, have been born again through that baptism, will eventually make it to heaven, but that for most people, there will be a period, a very long, very painful, fiery period of purging from sin after death in a place called purgatory that God never speaks of anywhere in the scriptures. They do not believe that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. They believe that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ plus your righteous living thereafter, plus your receiving of the sacraments of the church, plus your receiving through those sacraments the merits from the treasury of merit in heaven that has been stored up by those that they have canonized as saints, plus Jesus, plus Mary. Plus, on top of all of that, a period perhaps of tens of thousands or millions of years of fiery purging of your leftover sins in purgatory, and then you will be justified. That is not the gospel. Do you know what the Bible says when it uses the word saints? It declares everyone who believes to be saints. Even, get this, even the church in Corinth I don't know if you've ever read 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth had some serious problems. But do you know what Paul says about them when he first opens up that letter? He says, to those who are saints in Corinth. He calls them saints. Everyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ is immediately declared by the scriptures, by God himself, to be a saint. In Roman Catholicism, you get declared to be a saint after your death by an examination of the way that you lived. They have certain standards for that of miracles and various other things, but it's upon later examination of how did this person live. 
in the gospel of God that is conveyed in the scriptures, we are declared to be saints in spite of the way that we have lived. We are declared to be saints by faith alone in Christ alone. We, we don't stand before God to wonder, will my life add up enough for me to be forgiven of my sins? We stand before God as those who already have the not guilty verdict declared in advance. This is the difference between the gospels of works that exist in Rome and in all kinds of other religions and the gospel of God in the scriptures. In every other religion, it is do this and live. That's just law. It is stand in the court of God and see if your works measure up and then if you'll get a good verdict. In the gospel of God, it is you are given the not guilty verdict up front. And then you live in response. In Rome, it is being judged upon your performance. In the gospel of the scriptures, it is you have already been judged righteous. And now perform in joy for the glory of God. It's the difference between life and death. You need to know this. Saints in the scripture, though, who is that? That is you and me. That is you and me. The, the, oh, the clearest example of this in the scriptures, the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross. If you were to take that thief on the cross who was next to Jesus, who believed in Jesus in the last dying moments of his life, and, and you were to put him up to the scrutiny of the Roman Catholic Church or into any other standard of scrutiny for what his life would have been like, you, you would have looked at him and you would have said, there is no way that this man went straight to heaven. You would have said his entire life was a life of sin and rebellion and he was rightly being executed for his crimes. But do you know what Jesus declares to him? Upon that dying moment when he has faith in Jesus, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He went straight to heaven, and he is rejoicing. He has been forgiven much, and he is rejoicing much. He has received the same reward as, as all of those other workers. who you know, Jesus gave that parable of, of the, the, the workers who were waiting around all day to see who would hire them. Some of them got hired early in the day, and they worked all day. Some of them got hired all the way at the last hour, and they worked one hour, and then, and then the master went around, and he paid every single one of them the same wage. And those who had worked all day were angry about it. But the master said that it was up to him, up to him how he paid that wage. Guys, when you trust in Jesus... You might trust in Jesus when you are very young and live a long, godly life. And that's what I hope for all of you who are very young in here. I hope that you will trust in Jesus right now and live a long, godly life. But you might also be at the end of your life right now. And you might have lived a life of rebellion against God. And you might go out of this door and not pay attention as you cross the street and get hit by a bus. But if you have trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ today, then you are beloved and called and a saint of the Lord Jesus, not because of you, 
not because of you, but because of God and because of the perfect Christ who gave his perfect life on the cross. So what does saint mean? It means holy one. It comes from Latin, this word sanctus. It means holy. It means uh, when you have the word sanctification in the Bible, I wish it was translated as holyfication. That would be the word that I would come up with it if people let me come up with words like that, but they don't. Saints are holy ones, and it's something that we've already been declared by God from the moment that we believe. We have been justified by faith. We are declared saints. And listen to this also. Lest you come away thinking, that means if I believe, I can go and live with whatever worldly pleasures of the flesh that I want from now on. No. We are still to live as saints, to live as holy ones. If we've come to know the holy Christ, we need to set our hearts upon him And those who thus hope in him will purify themselves, says 1 John 3.3. We want to live in moral purity. We've been declared righteous, and we want to live righteously. It's something that God graciously grows in believers. As if you trust in Christ, your life is not going to be the same after that. When you know that you've been justified by faith alone and not by your works, your works are going to change. When you know that it's not based on your clean life that God accepts you, God will clean up your life. It's it's an amazing thing. If you are walking in such a way that nobody would be able to tell a difference between you and a lost person, you are a lost person. And yet, as we trust in Christ, the Spirit washes us. He cleans us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He saves us, he declares us to be saints, and he washes us. And when we see him purifying our lives, we love it. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's in Titus 2. You know what believers love? We love God, and God is holy. And if you love God, and if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are going to love holiness. If the idea of being holy doesn't appeal to you, then you don't know the holy God. If if you don't want to pursue holiness then how can you say that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not saying whether or not you are holy. I'm saying this is a character trait of those who are saints, of those who know Christ, of being given the love of God, is that we want to be holy. We want to pursue holiness. We want to grow in holiness. Christians are eager from the day that we are justified. We're eager to stand before Jesus perfect in holiness. When we stand before him, we're not going to desire sin because we will see him as he is and we will be like him. And we hope in that 
and we purify ourselves. Now, what if I'm not pure and holy today? Well, if, if you are not aware of your sin today, that's a bad sign, okay? It's a bad sign if you're not aware of your sin. Repentance is necessary. It's a necessary part of your salvation. If you don't know anything in your life to repent of today, then there's no repentance. You, how can you repent if you don't know what to repent of? If you come today and you say to yourself, well, uh, sure, I'm glad the preacher told those people to be holy like I am. You know what you are? You are among those Pharisees who rejected the help of a great physician because they didn't think they were sick. We need to know that we have to keep going back to the great physician. You never get to the point in this life where you say to yourself, I have become so well from my sin sickness that I just don't even need to go see him anymore. No, we keep going. We know that we are sinners. We go to Jesus. He cleanses us. He forgives us. We need to pray this. If you don't, if you're not, if you think to yourself, well, no, he's talking to somebody else. You need to pray this. You need to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Guys, if you say to yourself, I'm good on this because I'm on, I am on John MacArthur's side in the Lordship Salvation debate. I know, like none, so many, there's probably, how many people in this room? Probably like 20 people in this room don't even know what the Lordship Salvation debate is. And I know, and I know that you can't have Jesus as your Savior without him being your Lord. I know all that. I sure am glad the preacher is preaching to them. You need Jesus as your Lord. (laughs) You need Jesus as your Lord that you submit to, to love holiness, to ask him daily, search me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way, not in those people who reject the good doctrine, but if, if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. And what if you are aware of your sin and you're unhappy about it and you're grieving over it? Well, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Not that you should be constantly sad or something like that, but if you're aware of your sin uh, and you're at peace with it, that's, that's awful. Your soul's in danger. If you say, yeah, I'm a sinner, everybody's a sinner, eh, God loves people, that's a sign that you have not come to know the love of God. But if you're aware of your sin and you want to see it rooted out, that is beautiful. And you come to Christ, and you come to Christ as the one, it says in Hebrews 10, 14, who by a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His death has paid it in full, and his death is also cleaning us out as we go. For all time, those who are being sanctified. If you want to know what to do, he says this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we pray to God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And he answers, and he will do it. God's love, it comes to those who are specific people, like those in Rome. It comes in a call. It comes and makes us saints. And God's love brings grace and peace. This is the last half of that verse. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is coming, I should just briefly say, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get the wrong idea in your head like, 
okay, there's God and there's Jesus, two gods, and they're kind of working together, and they're working this out. Okay, we get grace and peace from who? From God and Jesus. And so it's almost like that, uh, you know, kindergarten Sunday school answer to everything. God and Jesus. Um, that's, he's not just throwing out names here for some reason. Just, just imagine this. Could you put, in place of the Lord Jesus Christ there, could you put Pastor Daniel? The answer is no. You can't say to anybody, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Pastor Daniel. You can't even do this. You can't even say grace and peace from God our Father and from the Apostle Paul. The fact that Jesus' his name is there is not saying, okay, you've got Jesus or God on one level and Jesus on another level. The fact that his name is there is saying Jesus is God. It's saying Jesus is God. And it's pointing out that as we get grace and peace from God, it is through our Lord Jesus Christ that he gives this, not through some other means. But this love of God, it gives us grace. It gives us grace. We talked about grace back a few, few verses ago, back in verse 5. Through him we have received grace. It's that unmerited favor. It's that giving of good things that we don't deserve, especially our gracious salvation. And not just our gracious salvation, not just our initial being rescued and forgiven from our sins, but every good thing in this life. And as he grows us, it is from God. It says in John, uh, John 1.16, from Jesus' fullness, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He says, to those who have already received grace, may grace come to you. May grace be multiplied to you. We get more and more grace from God. When you're first forgiven and accepted and justified by faith alone in Christ alone, it is by the grace of God alone that that has happened. And when you grow in your faith, when you grow in spiritual maturity, when you see sins that were once persistent in your life now overcome all kinds of things about spiritual growth, yeah, that, that's by God's grace. All of it is grace. A great exercise to do with other believers is to gather around, sit somebody down, and say, here is how we see evidence of grace in your life. Here is the way that we see that God has gifted you. Here is the way that we see that God is using you. Here is the way that we see that God is growing you. And to put that in terms, not just of what a great person you are, but to put it in the encouraging terms of I see God's grace at work in you. And this is the prayer from Paul for the people in Rome, the beginning of it, grace to you, grace and peace. This is a common greeting that Paul gives and that others in the scriptures give, but it's not a meaningless greeting. He gives grace, he gives peace. That peace that God gives, it is first and foremost a peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, he's going to say in Romans chapter 5. We were once God's enemies, he's been, we've been brought to be at peace with him through the blood of Jesus. That peace that he gives us is a peace with others too. And especially a peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Where it says in Ephesians, Ephesians 2 that he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by his blood, by the cross. He gives us peace with each other. And he gives us what most of us think of when we hear that word peace in the Bible. He gives us peace of mind. 
where you can cast your cares on him, cast your anxieties on him, where, where we can trust in him, we can pray to him and give thanksgiving to him. And the peace which passes all understanding will be given to us as we trust in Christ. He asked that grace would come by the love of God, that peace would come by the love of God. A lot of you know that Old Testament word, that uh, Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom. It's a common greeting in the Hebrew language even today. It means peace. It means for things to be at rest, for things to be in order, for things to come together in a right way in life. And when that comes, you know where it comes from? It comes from God. And it comes by his grace, grace and peace. It's from the Lord. It is from the Prince of Peace so that we can rest in God's love. So as we think of the love of God, we need to know that God gives this love in full measure, full measure. I, I, spent, a, I spent some time here trying to explain to you that God's love, his redeeming love, is not given to everyone, but I also want to tell you that it is offered freely to everyone. It is offered freely to you. And Jesus says to you, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you come to Jesus, if he is calling you, boy, rejoice, rejoice. Embrace the love of God poured out to you on the cross of Jesus. Embrace it. And pray that God would help you to know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God in Christ, which is beyond all knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have loved us in Jesus. I thank you for loving us from before the foundation of the world. I thank you for in love, predestining us to adoption uh, as sons through our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have loved us while we were still sinners and sent Jesus Christ to die for us. I thank you that you first loved us so that we would then love you. Lord, I thank you that you've poured out your love, not that we have loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Lord, as those who have been loved by you, I pray that you would open our hearts further and further to love you and to love our brothers. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us to know the, the, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ. We can't know it, and we, we want to know it, and we seek to know it. And I pray that as we know your love, that you'd grow us in holiness as your saints. I pray that you'd multiply grace to us. I pray that you'd multiply peace. I pray for those who have not been given your love. I pray that you'd give it. I pray that you'd give it freely as you've purchased it on the cross of Jesus. I pray that you'd bring people to faith in Jesus. Call them to yourself today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.